Thank you for that, Kevin, and for your gracious applause, though I don't deserve them. And uh, I don't really want to be called doctor because then people might get the idea that if they're not feeling well during the service, I can come and do something for them. You know, and I can pray. I can pray for you, but I can't really do much else. So um, today we are celebrating the third Sunday of Advent. And I don't know about you, but for me, as I go around in stores and other places, I just have to keep reminding myself, it's Advent, it's Advent, it's Advent. Uh, This is the time when I celebrate Jesus' birth, even if the world around me no longer does. So I want to remind you that this is a special season of the year for Christians and really for everyone else, but many of them don't know it. For Christians, it is a special, different kind of season, and we call it Advent, which simply means coming or appearing or arrival. And it reminds us of that wonderful time when our king came as one of us and taught us a new way of life and gave us hope and sent his spirit to be in us and with us. Now to others out there, maybe some here, it's simply a holiday of parties and buying and giving gifts. It's really two holidays, Advent for us and winter holidays, sometimes called Christmas, for reasons many people in our country have forgotten. But even Christians too often do not fully understand Advent and its real meaning. What we should be celebrating during these weeks is the greatest mystery of all time, the mystery of all mysteries, that the great creator of the whole universe became one of us, exchanging his glory for our misery so that we might gain something of his glory out of our misery. So what is this great mystery that I'm talking about that we are celebrating during Advent? Well, put on your seatbelts because I'm going to talk some theology from the pulpit today. That's what I am. I'm a theologian and I can't help it. We call this great mystery incarnation. The word comes from Latin and means enfleshment or becoming flesh. Very literally, it signifies the event in which God, who is by nature spirit, clothed himself in flesh. But it's too easy sometimes to misunderstand this mystery of incarnation in too literal of a way. The incarnation does not mean, as I've heard some people say, that the great God of the universe simply put on flesh and blood as a disguise. Actually, that was a common heresy in the ancient church among some Christians who misunderstood and went around misinterpreting to others this great mystery. They said that he only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human as we are, and I still hear that sometimes. But as was read from Philippians chapter 2, he put on our substance. And as the great Christmas carol says, mild he lay his glory by. Before he came to earth to be born of the Virgin Mary, he laid his glory aside. And as Charles Wesley in his great hymn wrote, he emptied himself of all but love. This mystery of God's self-emptying servanthood and of his taking on our miserable human condition to grow, to be tempted, to suffer, and even to die is the very heart of our Christian faith. 
When we as Christians try to picture God, we look at Jesus. I preached that earlier. Jesus is the human face of God, and that means he not only reveals God's character to us, he is God's character among us as one of us. He is that distant king or emperor living among us as one of us, but not recognized by many. Jesus was not just another messenger or emissary uh, or prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was the God who sent the prophets. Now, I'm going to drop a theological term on you. You can just forget it if you want to. There's no exam after the sermon. There never will be. We theologians have for centuries called this mystery hypostatic union. I know that word hypostatic is foreign. It sounds really strange. Hypostatic union. What does that mean? Well, this mystery is so hard to wrap our minds around that people who claim to be Jesus' followers in the past and sometimes today keep reducing it to something that's not really all that mysterious after all. For them, it's not a mystery to be adored, but a problem to be solved. As early as the second century, some so-called Christians in the ancient church began to deny the whole truth and claim that Jesus was either not really human or not really God, or a split personality, half God and half human, or even a hybrid of God's nature and man's nature. The whole 150 years from the early 4th century into the 5th century was consumed by these controversies about who Jesus Christ was and is. But fortunately, there were some great heroic church fathers like St. Athanasius of Alexandria, Egypt, who I teach my students as the saint of stubbornness. Because even when the emperor came to Alexandria and ordered him to stop teaching this great mystery, he would not. And he was exiled five times by emperors who did not believe that Jesus was really God. You see, the mystery of the incarnation is really only useful to us if it remains a mystery that we can't fully explain. Something beyond our complete comprehension. Why? Because God is so great, it is impossible to understand how he could scale himself down to our size. We are so puny and weak that it's impossible to understand how one of us could be the Lord of the universe. But only if it's true can we be saved. That's what St. Athanasius kept, kept saying. Only if he was both God and human can we be saved. God can't save us just by sending us a message or a messenger or a prophet. He tried that and it didn't work. Our salvation is being transformed into his own likeness and even eventually participating in his glorious nature, as 1 Peter tells us. That's something that many Protestants have forgotten. Eastern Orthodox churches celebrate what they call deification, the idea that someday God wants to share a portion of his nature with us and transform us. Some early Christians denied this mystery of the incarnation, and so the men and women that we call church fathers and mothers had to defend it and protect it. Some today deny this mystery, and it still needs to be defended and protected. The gospel that we proclaim, that we can be saved from our miserable condition of lostness and hopelessness because of sin, is wrapped in this mystery of the incarnation that we go further in theology and call the hypostatic union. 
The early Christians then developed a doctrine to protect this mystery of the incarnation, and they gave it a name that's strange to most people, hypostatic union. First, at the Council of Nicaea, which was the first time and place where all the bishops of the Christians in the Roman Empire and beyond it were invited by the emperor to come and write down what Christians should believe about the person of Jesus Christ. But the controversy went on after that. And eventually at another council, at a place called Chalcedon in 451 AD, they came together again. And they said, and this has remained Orthodox Christology, Jesus is one person, not two, sharing two natures equally, God's and ours. In other words, they said God, is th- God himself is three who's and one what. Now let, let that sink in for a minute. I'm doing theology here. Okay, hope you like it. God, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is three who's, three persons, But one what? They share equally one divine nature. Not three what's, one what. But Jesus Christ is one who, who has two what's. Human and divine. That's what I would teach my students and tell them, you can kind of later forget all the technical terminology and just remember, Trinity means one what and three who's and Jesus Christ, incarnation means one who, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on our nature, so has two what's. So Jesus is the same person as the eternal Son of God the Father, the second person of the Trinity, but he is that person clothed with our nature, thoroughly human, yet without sin. Now, some people think mistakenly that the early church fathers and then later the reformers who followed them in this were trying to rationalize a mystery with all this fancy language of hypostatic union and so forth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this has been a campaign, if you will, of mine as a theologian is to go against people like Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code, and others like him who try to tell people that these doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation the hypostatic union. These doctrines, he says, were invented under Emperor Constantine and never heard of before the fourth century. I will tell you, as a church historian who's read the church fathers, that's not true. That's nonsense. Anyone who reads the second and third century fathers of the church know that they also believe these truths and embrace them, but as mysteries to be protected. So now to move away from theology a little bit to what does this mean for us? It means God is with us. God is not some distant deity. You know, people who study uh, religion in America say that the main religion of America, often going under the term Christianity, is moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning, if you want to be a Christian, live up to God's expectations Therapeutic meaning, oh, you can't, but God always forgives, so be comforted. And deistic meaning, he's way out there somewhere, far away from us, watching us from a distance. You remember the song by Bette Midler, from a distance God is watching us? That's deism. So sociologists of religion have polled Americans, especially young people, and said the religion of most Americans, even who call themselves Christians, is moralistic, therapeutic, deism, a God who isn't really with us. 
who doesn't really live in us through the Holy Spirit. So what's the relevance of what I've been talking about to your faith in life? And that's an excellent question. The answer is it means everything, everything, if you're a Christian. And it's the main reason for becoming a Christian. You see, we don't have a God who is distant, cold, remote, or, or a God who is always angry and judgmental and wrathful. Because of Jesus, we have a God who is also our brother and even our servant. That's not to say God is down on our level, as it were, miserable. He's also holy. He's also above us. He's perfect in every way. But our God is not only holy and above us and perfect. He has chosen to descend to be with us as one of us. So this means that our God is intimately with us. Our relationship with God is meant to be one of intimacy. The God of Jesus is a relational God, and his very essence is love. Now, that doesn't mean he's tame. The great C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia about the lion Aslan who represented Jesus Christ, he's not tame, but he is good. He's not tame, but he is good. And he's so good that he went as far as it is possible to rescue us. He loved us so much that he couldn't stay away, but became one of us because there wasn't any other way we could ever fully relate to him or him to us. It means, and this is the hardest thing to swallow for many people, it means that now one of us, a human being, Jesus Christ, is within the Godhead. The God is Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And when by faith we are united with him, he takes us up into the family of God. Of course, we will never be God as God is God, but he didn't become one of us just to drop his humanity when he ascended and returned to his pre-incarnate glory. No, he is now fully human in his resurrected, glorified body, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, which means his intention is to bring us up there to be with him and the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, the truth of the incarnation, like all biblical and theological truths, should both comfort and afflict us. It comforts us because it tells us that God so loves us that he is willing to become one of us at great cost to himself. But it also comforts us because it tells us that although God is omnipotent, he is also our servant and friend. But it challenges us to Live our lives in that way, being servants and friends to each other and to all people around us. We are to be like God, Paul says in Philippians 2, like the Son of God, self-emptying servants of others, laying aside our rights and privileges and independence in order to serve others sacrificially, just as God did for us as a baby in the manger and the man on the cross. Our Christian lives are to be incarnational, immersed in meeting the needs of those around us, even at great cost to ourselves. So back to Advent back to this holiday season and what it's really all about. For us Christians, it isn't really about Santa Claus or overspending on gifts or stuffing ourselves sick or getting tipsy at the office party or any of those other silly substitutes for celebrating the greatest mystery the world has ever known or can know. 
It would be nice if Christians would just avoid all of those silly substitutes. They have nothing at all to do with the true meaning of the season, which is Christ's coming, which is what Advent means, incarnation and salvation. Now, if none of what I've been saying means anything to you, maybe it's because you haven't yet met our friend and brother, God, our servant, Jesus, yet. And when you do, it will all become meaningful to you, even if you don't ever fully understand it. You will enter into the greatest story ever told, which will then become your story and fill your life with meaning and purpose. Let's pray. Father God, Brother Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's anyone here who has gotten lost in all the hubbub and commotion of of the holidays and forgotten what it's really all about, which is so easy to do in these times. When almost everyone around us, all the businesses and everything are pushing at us to spend, 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 and eat and eat and drink and drink, and it's not what it's really all about for us. So help us to resist that. And even as we walk into the big box stores, remind ourselves, or you remind us, this this season is about me. I will go with you because I'm one of you. Thank you for becoming one of us. Thank you for taking our humanity onto yourself and exchanging our misery for your glory, ultimately in the future when you come back. But thank you that we can experience something of that now. In Jesus' name, amen.